You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. It's time for another Geeks Pub with Tim Robertson and David Cohen from Tech Fan Podcast. See Hello. how we did that? Uh, yeah. Tying the two together. Smooth. Synergy. Yep. <laughs> so <clears throat> one of the things that David and I have talked about with uh, tech or with uh, the Geeks Pub is kind of maybe theming it a little bit, occasional episodes. We haven't really done that to date because um, we're honestly lazy. <laughs> um, well, I can't speak for David. That's a, I, you and I are very similar. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this week, though, um, we'll talk about a, a, a little bit of some current stuff, but we're going to focus on 1982. Um, yeah. So we're, we're theming this episode as 1982, which, uh, boy, that was, what, 38 years ago as we record yeah. this? Wow, that's yeah. a long time. It, it is. And yet, in some respects, a lot of these things on, on the list, when I mean, you're thinking back of things to talk about, seem like only yesterday. Here's the scary part. As we record this, I'm older than my father was in 1982. That's strange. That's to me. That's really odd. <laughs> yeah, like I need to try and kind of, kind of mentally do some gymnastics and figure out. Well, I presume I'm probably the same, to be honest. But yeah, um, probably. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I, yeah. Eighty-two was a, a cool year, and we're going to get to all that. But first, there's a couple things about Star Wars and uh, Tenant. That you put in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, let's start with Tenet. It, it opened up to $20 million. Yeah. And they're like, oh, what does this say about the future of the mu- um, movie industry and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I don't know. That There's a pandemic going on and some idiots decided to release a tentpole movie when four-fifths of the planet aren't going to go to a movie theater to watch it. I, yeah. Th- it's just a guess on my part. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm I'm sure it's a good movie, and most people would want to risk death to go see it. Well, but that, I think that's just part on of the, the problem. Off chance, yeah. yeah. Part of the problem is because of um, particularly Nolan and and the people around Nolan around this movie because they've been very aggressive about pushing about. Well, you've got to see this in the theaters. We need to get it in the theaters. It was one of the last ones to be pulled from a release yep. schedule. Yeah, there's been a lot of hype around this, and and. Um, you know this this article I, I linked to kind of says it. it it it's been pitched as the savior of movies during the pandemic because you know this is the one that's going to get people out and it's had mixed reviews to be fair yeah to be um, fair some people are saying it's really good and others are like uh okay i think it's a typical nolan movie in that in that and and this is going to go against it as well is it the plot is incredibly complicated um and it's probably one of those movies that requires more than one viewing to be able to uh, to really get your head around it. And people aren't, you know, they're barely seeing it once, let alone go and see it twice. And the other during thing is, a pandemic, during a pandemic, yeah. Jesus. Uh, and stupid. so, of course, yeah, the grosses are tiny and are nothing like what it needs to make to be able to return a profit. Because you know, this was a, a well, it was, the, the budget was well over. I don't know exactly what the budget was, but it was well over hundred million. So. Um, and they haven't done crap marketing for it, to be honest. Uh, well, because I think uh, it's interesting marketing at the moment because there's two types of marketing I'm seeing here in the UK. There's the don't worry, everything's going to be all right. And by the way, we're doing everything we can to keep you safe. 
and then there's the other which is is basically kind of pretending that the coronavirus isn't here at all or perhaps pitching for you know well we're advertising to you now so you can come and do this stuff next year now yeah. m- movies uh movies can't really do either of those things it's very no. difficult when you're promoting a particular movie to say but don't worry the theater you're going to go and see it is safe because it's not the theater promoting the movie it's the movie company um uh, and and secondly, yeah, the last the last um, thing you want to you want to say in a movie promotion is come and see it next year. So um, I, I don't understand why they even released it. Well, it makes because, no sense at all because they're des- well they're desperate to get some income, and I think they're also desperate to make sure that the movie theaters have some income. Well, um, you know, I, I guess that they're a little bit concerned about the movie theaters, but at the end of the day, Warner Brothers. And that's who did it, yes? Yeah. Warner Brothers? Yeah. So they're more concerned about their bottom line, not cinematic theaters, right? Well, uh, they, 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 could put, they could give lip service to the, 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 the theater experience, but at the end of the day, they have to make money. Why yeah. not have sold this to Netflix or HBO for $200 million? I think, I think, I think the movie companies, they're, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because, yeah, it doesn't affect their bottom line if movie theaters go out of business, except that they need to have somewhere to... To sell their movies to when this finishes, everyone's kind of got this thing that oh well next year it's going to be better. Um, I don't think it is to be honest, uh, as the way things are at the moment. But the point is, everyone's looking beyond the coronavirus and they're saying, well, we want to get back to normal. We need to have movie theaters to sell our movies to, otherwise we don't get the grosses. And so, so I think from that point of view, they do want to do soft releases to try and keep movie theaters ticking over. The problem is they're doing it with with movies they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in, and and they'll have saved a lot of money on marketing, um, because the marketing for some of these movies is kind of out of control at this point. The yeah. um, you know they probably saved fifty sixty million dollars on marketing by not uh, pushing Tenet as hard as they would have done. But um, yeah, you know I think that's that's the difficulty is that is that they they don't want to find a landscape when coronavirus finishes that all the movie theaters are out of business. And they either either have to buy them up and invest in them themselves and take that risk on themselves, or alternatively not have anywhere to to push their movies out to. I suspect the problem with the streaming will be interesting to see what uh, the experiment with uh, Disney Plus and Mulan has has, has generated. It's actually but, been really good. Well, I'm sure it's good, but I don't think it's it's anything like the heights of what you would get from uh, a big worldwide cinema release. And and well, I think that's is- the problem. Well, I nothing's going to be. I mean, it's a different yeah. world. But yeah. by the same token, you know, look, you and I derided Milan, spending 20 bucks to have early access to something that yeah. if you just wait a few months, you can yeah, watch it's it. Coming, it's coming in December, so it's not even yeah. that far away. No. But a lot of people have done it. So I think that they've shown that this is somewhat of a success. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a data they're point. They're making of, money. Yeah, it's, I think the problem with that is it's a data point of one. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, that does not mean that the entire movie-going public is ready to transition to this model. It would work with Black Widow. I could tell you that right now. Well, and yeah, I'll be it, honest, I'll it, be one of those guys that would spend 20 yeah. bucks to let, you know, the kids and I watch it on the big screen here at home. It probably will, but that is not the whole movie industry. In fact, I would be upset if it if it ended up being just that, because then we would have even more of a situation where you have... You know these big tentpole movies that kind of can support the the kind of one-off payment model, the pay as you pay as you watch model. Um, but the, there's a hell of a lot of other movies that, that just won't get made because the 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 economics won't work. You know, you won't have a it won't it won't work for a sixty million dollar movie. 
Well, and, it has, and, and and Netflix has already shown that. Well, they're making so, fifty, sixty million dollar movies and and releasing them on Netflix, and they're doing extremely well with them. Well, I, I think I think some of them are, some of them aren't. I think that the problem is well, you're going to end true up with the that's in the yeah, movie theaters themselves. But, I mean, but you're going to end it's up. It's not with, either or. I think that the clearly the streaming is the way to go. Early access is going to be a thing that's going to happen, and. Look, for anybody listening to this that owns a movie theater or, or works in a movie theater or remembers working in a movie theater, it's a different world. And it, will it eventually get to back to the way it was? Probably. Is it going to happen within the next 12 months? Probably not. No. I'm thinking end of 2021. And in the meantime, they've made a lot of movies between when everything shut down and where they are now. And they have to release them somewhere. And it yeah. is not going to be movie. Th- I think what Tenet proves is, you know what? We got all this money or all these movies. We can't put them in theaters. No one's yeah. going to go. And that's, yeah. that's what that's proving. But I, let's I th- move on to yeah. uh, some Star Wars stuff here before we get into 1982. You link mm. to uh, two different ones here, two Star Wars movies or two Star Wars stories. The first one... <clears throat> And they kind of relate to each other, to be honest. Yeah. Um, John Boyega, who was one of the most refreshing things about The Force Awakens, in it, my it, opinion. Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with you. The idea of telling part of the story from a stormtrooper's point of view, I yeah. thought, was was a great idea. Now, um, I remember when that we first saw that trailer, some uh, racist asses on the internet, oh, it's a black stormtrooper, you don't have black stormtroopers. And, of course, you and I are like... Oh my God! Really? Yeah. Um, it was just disgusting racism yeah. at its worst, and he caught a lot of of that because he's black. But to you and I, we could care less. Yeah, exactly. It was all about the character and about the movie, and his character in the Force Awakens showed so much promise. Yeah, he he was. I don't want to say an innocent, but he he kind of was the everyday man being dropped in the middle of everything that's going on. And the movie yeah. opens with him, really. That's I mean, right. It's, it's yeah. him seeing these atrocities, and he's just like, I, I, this isn't who I am. This isn't who I want to be. He sees an opportunity with a, a rebel to use that guy to get him out of this situation and, and get out of the military, if you will. And he yeah. does it. And, 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 and the I adventure thought, starts. Yeah, I thought it actually it, – it painted a very nice contrast between the Empire and the First Order. You yeah. know, it it was despite the fact that later on in the movie and then through the rest of the movies, I had some real problems with the concepts of the First Order. Um, you know, about the fact that they had all this equipment and budget and and infinite number of people. But you know, the, I think opening at the beginning with them basically they they're forcibly conscripting people into yeah. into their military. Uh, and then to have one of them basically say, yeah, no, you know, no, no I'm not, I can't do this, uh, and then switch sides, um, you know, and and obviously the the, the journey that um, Finn goes on in the movie because he starts the movie thinking he's a coward because he doesn't want to do what the rest of the the troops are doing, yeah. But of course, yep. his very first act in in helping Poe escape is an incredibly brave act. Uh, in a, in, a, in even though he, he he continues to believe himself to be unworthy and a coward, in fact, what he does is is incredibly brave to break out a very high profile prisoner uh, prisoner and escape with him. So, and then he has he basically he allow well he he brings uh, Ray into the story and and he he basically drives the entire movie. Yes, um, and um, and it, he's a very interesting character. Yeah, I mean, 
and complex. He has depth. Yeah. And I was really looking forward more than Ray or Poe. I was really looking forward to seeing where his character is going to go. Yeah. In and the Last Jedi, and of course. Yeah. Uh, and and you know this is what he no, said. No, not He's, the Last Jedi. Which was the middle uh, one? Uh, the uh, it says says volumes. I can't even remember the names of them. Uh, well, it was the Last Jedi. Yeah, it was Last Jedi. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, he he's basically complained about you know he felt the same way. He liked the first movie. He thought the script. He thought the character was going somewhere, and then basically it becomes background for the re- for the remaining two movies. Um, and, it, and, and it once again, which the second story that we're going to talk about here points to, is a complete lack of leadership, a complete yeah. lack of creativity. No one knew what to do. There was no overriding plan. Yeah, it was simply let's make money making Star Wars movies. That's right, and and of course, you know, it's 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 tough on John Boyega because you know he sees a, a racial element to it, which I think is there in that you know. Um, black characters often get pushed get forgotten about push the sideline it's not a it's not a conscious racism it's not a it's not a oh well we don't we don't want a black guy leading the movie so we're going to push him to one side it's basically that's that institutional racism of just forgetting the black guys are there um i i think it goes i think there is an aspect of that but i don't think that's really what it was i think what a lot of that is is um they just didn't know what to do with these characters. Yeah, no, and, and there's because that as, the same, yeah. you could say the same thing with Poe. What, what does yeah. he do? Yeah, no, I, I, I and agree. You could say the and, same thing about yeah. Ray. The I, only character that really sees any kind of growth or depth is Kylo Ren. He gets yeah. more interesting as the stories progress. Yeah, well, even, even though it's in a in a very uneven way, and and yes, and this goes to the second story, which is is Daisy Ridley says that. Um, all the way through the filming of the final movie, the script wasn't clear about about what her journey was and whether. And initially, they were taking that she was going to be. Uh, she said initially she was. Um, she went from being Palpatine's granddaughter, which she ended up being, um, and then a couple of weeks later, they were saying she was. Uh, she was a some, Kenobi. Uh, Kenobi child or Kenobi relation, uh, and then it went back to her being the no one that she was in the middle film, and then they settled back on. Uh, Palpatine's granddaughter and it yes you're absolutely right it just goes to show they hadn't there was no overarching plan to me the, and this is what the I had I had some problems with The Force Awakens um, you know that the slavish um, adherence to the structure of the original Star Wars movie was something that I, I, I kind of understood why they did it but I'm, I think particularly towards the end it didn't really work but you know the, the idea of cycles repeating themselves um, was good and and yeah the the scenario the universe they built for the force awakens i thought was fantastic the idea yep. of a final battle over a desert planet with wreckage i thought was brilliant um i thought um yeah the whole the whole idea of somebody coming out of nowhere who's who suddenly is able to challenge and rise up against the the evil of the su- new pseudo empire i thought was you know a, an interesting callback because luke was we find out later that luke kind of was maneuvered into that position but in the first movie that was his story too it's like who's this kid who's right. come out of nowhere and all of a sudden you know he's found to be a force user and all that sort of thing i was interested to see where that was going to go um you know, there was the the stuff with with a, a lot of the uh, the idea of the Jedi being more very rapidly mythologized because they'd gone away and everything. I thought was all good, um, and then they kind of just blew it. And the reason is, is they didn't. It's clear they had all those ideas, but they didn't sit down and write. Well, where does that take us over a trilogy? 
Right. They just basically no left them there. And then the next guy comes in. He says, well, I want to pick this and pick this and pick this and do that and do that. And then he has a falling out with Kennedy and then somebody else comes in. And and then the final movie, <laughs> Abrams comes back. And he, he, again, he's doing the th- same thing. He's picking up bits he wants from the previous movies. He's throwing other stuff away. But it, it's clear that even he doesn't did not have the vision at the beginning. Uh, and what does Boyega do in this entire third movie? Nothing. No, he, he, he runs around like he, he, crying they, for they, Ray. They, yeah, I well, mean, they they set up they set up set him up to kind. Of, I think the idea was they oper- they were going to operate a B plot with him and the the people from the. You know what? The movies are so bad. Disjointed. I'm going to be honest now. So bad that I have difficulty remembering the specifics of how he got together with the horse people um and i in fact i was thinking about this i was thinking hang on a minute was the wreckage of the death was that indoor that the no. wreckage of the death star was on and, well and yeah it-, it was indoor but don't think of return of the jedi because remember <clears throat> that was the moon of endor that that happens on right okay so yeah. they're on endor they're not a, the moon right. of endor okay well again that all became somewhat confused in my mind and i'm thinking hang on a minute why is why is there why is there a not a forest on endor and why is there an ocean and you know it, it all is all very yeah because because <laughs> return of the jedi and that death star was definitely in orbit around the moon of endor it shouldn't have exactly. fallen anywhere else yes. um and uh and yeah it, and it's just all and and we've we've heard this before that they basically had an idea had a, a mood board of ideas and they started picking them and building a narrative thread around them and it, it's just such it, it's hard to say that you know because we know the original star wars movie yeah lucas kind of did the same thing it was originally going to be a standalone movie and then it was hugely successful and he turned it into a trilogy and then he claimed out um that it that not only was it a trilogy it was number six out of out of a trilogy of nine and we know he made all that off that of stuff up you know well well technically yes of course he did it because yeah. all of this came from his mind so yeah. i i always accepted okay that was originally going to be nine um but you know what the <laughs> i hate to say this you you know what the last this last trilogy did it actually made the prequels better. Oh yeah, absolutely. It it most definitely did that because for all we criticized them, they had a plot and a structure across yeah. three movies. They had character development. Hell, even Jar Jar had character development. Absolutely. You know, it it was all planned out and it hangs together far more coherently than these final three movies do. These final three movies are a mess. Oh, um, it's more than a mess. That's insulting, and that's yeah. why I know you disagreed with this. But maybe you've come around. I think that the next trilogy needs to just wipe the slate clean. Those movies never happen. If it's a time travel thing, so be it. I, as a Star Wars fan, and when I say that, I mean as a as the concept of what Star Wars is that universe. I really am a huge fan. These movies need to go away. They're, uh, oh, I, I think I think they need to go awful. away. Uh, I think we disagree in how they should do that. My view well, is... I don't care how they do yeah, it. Yeah, my I just view think is they, they should, should just ig- they should just ignore them, right? I think they should have them as a background, but they I should don't, start I don't Star so. Wars with a whole new set of characters, maybe a no. different time frame, and they should just basically say, you know, because actually, if you take a look at if you take a look at the the second the, the the original Star Wars movies, which is the second of the tri- the second trilogy, and then the final ones, you could say all of those all there's a massive two galactic battles two empires uh, you know got rid of um galactic republic set up not down set up again and you could turn around you could say all of that is a failed 
experiment. The whole thing is failed. I'm talking about if you're a person in the galaxy now, you could turn around and say, look, these guys have been fighting over here and what have they done? All they do is just fight each other and there's wars and we all suffer in the meantime. They should just turn around and say, you know what? The galaxy is done with the lot of you. We don't care about the Skywalkers. We don't care about the Jedi. Yeah, because all you do is cause death and destruction wherever you go and we want something new. I think that would be a far more interesting story or place to to start a story from. The, the Republic had a thousand years of peace. There was no big, yeah. big wars and stuff until the rise of the Empire. And realistically, that's only about, and, and even if you include the First Order, that's less than 100 years of history yeah. over a thousand. That's right. Yeah. But I, I think I think what could be argued for is that the, the rebels who beat the Empire first time around weren't much better because all they did is allow another Empire to arise right under yeah. their noses. Uh, and I, I can imagine a, a a scenario where you say, you know what, we want nothing to do with a lot of you. Um, yep. and, well, we're um, going to see. You I know, mean, you know, it's, I don't it's, think they'll do that anything that brave. No. I think, I think their ability to throw away what they perceive as the legacy um, of of what of what those nine movies represent is. I don't think they can resist going back to that well, even though I think the last three movies have showed they don't have the creative chops to tap them out properly. I agree. And yeah. irregardless of the the Mandalorian, um, nothing is going to get better until they get rid of Kathleen Kennedy. She, yeah. is, she is just, this is, and like, oh yeah, you guys don't like her because she's a woman. I, I, I don't care who she no. is. It, her leadership has been atrocious. Yeah. She does not know what she's doing. I don't think she's qualified to do the jobs that they hired her to do. The only thing in the Star Wars universe that she's done really correct was hire John Favreau and give him basically complete control over what he wants to do yeah. with the Mandalorian. But even even that I have seen some criticism and I have some respect well, of for you this. Can, of, you can have some saying, criticism about everything. Yeah, no, basically saying but even with the Mandalorian there is too much throwback. Yeah. And I and I I talked about this with the, the scene in the in the tattooing cantina. Yeah. Right. They could easily have done the Mandalorian without having any original Star Wars characters in at all. You know, they could have not they could have they could have made him a different um, nice in armor rather than uh, a Mandalorian. They could have had a different baby instead of baby Yoda. Yeah. They could have done all of that and it would have been just as good. And yet they maybe, continued maybe they continue to have the, the links into the rest of the Star Wars universe. And, and yeah, the, I think that's fine though. Well, it depends, I, I like it. depends how well it's done and, and I'm not well, going to criticize yeah. them for, 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 you know, how, how well has it been done? It's been amazing. Oh yeah. I, I and it's going to get only worse, in your opinion, then, because they're bringing back Boba Fett. I, they're I bringing agree. in um, uh, Ahsoka. I agree. It could it could possibly get worse because uh, I think I they think will. I think the better. problem is that if they lose focus and they start dwelling on that sort of stuff, then then yes, it could get worse. So let's jump to 1982. Um, how old were you in 82? Same age as you, 12. Yeah, 12 years old. Yeah. So that is twelve years old. You're still yeah. a kid, still a boy, but you're not a teenager yet. So that it's a it's a weird age because you're kind of getting out of playing with toys, and you're kind of really starting to notice the girls. Yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I liked girls pretty early age. I mm-hmm. I, I remember being in a very young kid. And there was a girl named Stacy, and there was something about her. 
<laughs> that was like second grade too. Yeah. Uh, so 1982 um, to me really is kind of the beginning of the 80s. Well, 1980 yeah. and 81 were kind of carrying over from all the stuff that was popular in the 70s. And 82 was when the 80s kind of thing started happening. Yeah. And we, uh, we, we saw let's big face changes. It, we were the kind of kids you see in Stranger Things. You know, we were yes. those. Yeah, that and, was 100% and, us. Yeah. And and 12 is kind of peak kid, I think, you know, um, because you, it's like you say, once you become a teenager, you start thinking more about um, older things. Uh, you, you Cars, you, girls. Yeah, exactly. You, you tend to, you tend to, voluntarily start pushing away the things from your childhood as babyish but 12 you're on that cusp so yes you know you start to look at those things but at the same time you still really get the kid the stuff you had when you were smaller um yes. and and really the 82 was a a year when kind of the geek culture that we like today uh, really started really started yeah we stride. like to say oh what about apple in the 70s no, no. what about atari no, not really. No, I mean, eighty-two was when yeah. when the mod, the Atari really world became started. a thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So in nineteen eighty-two, one of the big things was uh, the Commodore sixty-four and in the UK the ZX Spectrum. Yeah. Uh, launched, and that was a, a seminal moment in technology when both of those launched. We still look fondly back at that. I mean, just this year they launched, or within the last twelve months. They launched the C64 Mini yep. and a couple different projects based on the ZX Spectrum. Oh, that that one that I backed, the uh, Kickstarter just finished uh, a couple of days ago, and they raised, they were aiming for £250,000. They raised £1.8 million. Uh, and Nostalgia is a strong uh, well, thing, yeah, isn't the, it? The, the, and the thing is, is that what these projects are trying to do now is they're, they're trying to take the best of those old systems but develop on them so they can do more modern stuff as well. Yep. So you get a community around that. Um, um, and it's really it's really quite exciting. But, you know, it, I recognize I, the, the Spectrum. I think the total, the Spectrum next, the total backers over the two Kickstarters is just less than 10,000 people. Um so, you know, this is a fairly niche nostalgia niche, <laughs> if you like. Mm-hmm. And I think the C64 Mini as well is, is, is appeals to a lot of people of a certain age because uh, modern kids look at those games and, and they kind of go, wow, uh, you know, you used to play like this. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, the other- you know, the C- and, and the thing about the C64 and the Spectrum and all those other systems is that this is just before the big video game crash. Um, and they kind of survived through that. Um, and they kind of kept video games alive until Nintendo came along late in the 80s, early 90s. Um, and if they'd not been there, then there's a possibility that video games would have turned out very differently. So, um, uh, Video game crash was really the next year, 83. Yeah, but, exactly. But but these the thing is, they launched in 82, and they, yes. they basically took us through the video game crash. And if they hadn't been there, there would have been nothing to play. <laughs> After That's crash, true. so well, arcades are still pretty big in the yeah, 80s, but so. but you know what I mean. I'm talking about home gaming, home. and they really they really kept home gaming, home computing alive as a thing, and showed the industry that despite the crash, there was still interest there. And I I would argue that you wouldn't have got, um, and we'll talk about some of the other systems on this list as well. But you wouldn't have got the the kind of the rise in because Nintendo became much bigger later in the in the decade than the Atari and Coleco and what have you ever were, uh, and that probably wouldn't have happened. Who, who knows? Maybe Nintendo might never even have gone into the Western market if it hadn't been for this, the Commodore 64 in particular because it was so big in the States. So um, 
a little company called Adobe launched in 1982. <laughs> uh, you know, we we kind of overlook Adobe nowadays because they're just kind of a, a permanent fixture in the tech world. And you got to think in, in 82, how many tech companies, software companies were launching? Uh, we could do 50 different companies every episode of either the Geeks Pub or Tech Fan. Yeah. And we would never run out. No. <laughs> and 99.9 of those companies are long, long gone. Even right? some of the, even some huge ones from huge. the early 80s, you know. Um, Aldous. And, Word, I mean, yeah, Aldous, WordPerfect. <laughs> yeah, they're all, they all fell to the wayside. But Adobe yeah. has this little program called Photoshop that it, 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 it becomes synonymous with what it does. Photo manipulation on home computers. That's. That is what Adobe founded their entire company based around. Yeah. And it's still here today. It's super powerful. I mean, when you see a manipulated image, you call it Photoshopped. Just yeah. like if you use Kleenex, it's That's Kleenex. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not Kleenex. Kleenex is a brand. So Adobe became that. I'm sure to this day they probably hate the, that term is in use well but. maybe but it i mean it does just look every every time you manipulate an image on a computer now or a phone or pretty much anything you are using the controls that adobe invented they even use the same symbols you know cut yep. cut copy and paste and the and the uh the frame well you know, mac the, paint was doing it as well don't yeah. don't you know and, yeah and, and but, but adobe but there was became, no mac in 82 uh, yeah adobe became the shorthand standard for yes. all of that stuff and when you, you use the same terminology and the same tools that adobe created when they created photoshop so that's that's kind of how much they are the bedrock of of an of, of an entire way of life that will probably never go away because i think we will always end up editing images that same way because it, it they kind of hit it right the first time it's the best way of doing it on a computer interface with where you have a pointer or a finger or something like that um i don't know if it's the best but it's the most accepted yeah you know i think one of the problems with saying anything is oh this is the only way to do it is that then you discount uh anything that may have come ahead of time yeah but and, it's, been 40, it's been 40 years nearly and it's still sticking around so it's probably got something going for it well, it, it did something right, right? Yeah. We'll we'll jump down a little bit on the list because it's kind of related in a way. And yeah. that is uh, ColecoVision launched. ColecoVision was, um, I would I would argue, the first viable competition to Atari. Um, as someone in the States, and I don't know how it was in the UK, but at least in the States, Atari was king. That was also Activision, but, or not Activision, um, in television. In television. But yeah. it just, it was never a thing. It really, yeah. really wasn't. Some it, people it, had it, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But next to Atari, it was just like, the graphics were actually worse on the Intellivision than they were on the Atari. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it was disc. the same here. I, yeah. I, Atari had huge brand presence because they had Space Invaders and they bundled it with the console. And that exactly. was the biggest game of the early 80s. Absolutely. It wasn't even close. So, yeah, and then so, ColecoVision comes out and they did something very smart. They licensed a game from Nintendo. Now, this was before the NES, of course. Nintendo yeah. was, I don't want to say gigantic in the arcades, but they had one really big hit called Donkey Kong. Yeah. And the ColecoVision came with a version of Donkey Kong that was 
very, very um, true to the arcade. Well, and it looked yeah. way they, better they, was, than what it Atari was had. It was much more powerful than the twenty six. The twenty six hundred was like a mid seventies design. Coleco, well, of course, it was. Yeah, yeah. ColecoVision um, was was much much more powerful, and consequently, it could produce something that looked much more like an arcade game. Uh, and yep. Donkey, Donkey Kong and the ColecoVision. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it you look that at it system. next side-by-side side with the arcade and you can say, well, it's not that close, but it was a hell of a lot closer than the, the Atari well, at version. At the time, <laughs> it was amazing that we yeah. could get arcade, we thought of anyways, arcade quality on the home console. And yeah. that video game, that port, if you will, and it wasn't a port, it was written from scratch, but yeah. Donkey Kong and ColecoVision went hand in hand. Yeah. Um, they even, ColecoVision even came out with tabletop little mini arcade games that were LED ones. I got a Donkey Kong tabletop from ColecoVision in like 82, 83. And it's probably, I would say it's the oldest thing that I owned when I was a kid that I still have. It's still yeah. here. I can I can see it from where I'm sitting. I re-stickered mm-hmm. it a couple of years ago because the stickers are getting kind of not good. Um, but I it's still there i still have it that's how much yeah. it meant to me um uh, and i was talking before about the link between the the computer games and then what happened with nintendo at the end of the 80s where they they came out with the and nintendo entertainment system and basically exploded the video game market again um and and interestingly enough the um developer of the famicom which was the uh japanese version of the uh, nintendo entertainment system he had a coleco vision and he used it as the model for how he wanted the smoothness of the graphics on the um on the nes to be and and really that was the nes's defining feature when you first saw super mario the fact that the the that it was so smooth, that it scrolled so smoothly. And you can tie that directly back to the power of the ColecoVision and what the Japanese designers saw in it. So um, it really is, even though it, it wasn't the world's biggest seller and it, you know, it basically was killed in the, in the games crash the following year, um, it's a tremendously important system for that. Um, especially as it, I think the difference with Coleco is because they were a games company rather than a computer company, they came in and they were focused on developing. Uh, you know presenting a very good games experience because they knew that's how they sold toys and um i think that's what differentiated them from uh, their competitors who were constantly hampered by um cost cost saving measures that were made by engineers because they thought they could save a few cents on the dollar um and those those things then compromised the quality of the games and it's amazing really um how quickly before the games crash of 83 is is how uh, prehistoric the atari 2600 start to look towards the end oh it was bad you know because because it, it just did not have the power to keep up with these other systems at all i remember going out to lakeview square mall probably end of 82 beginning 83 and there was a couple of different toy stores but the one that was in the mall that i liked a lot was kb toys mm-hmm. i remember them and yeah i liked them a lot they they had a a fairly robust selection of video games but i remember towards the end there they would have these bins and they were technically not even inside the store they were outside the store yeah you know in the, <laughs> That's in right. the they walkways. didn't care if people stole them no <laughs> and they had all these atari 2600 games for like 99 cents um i remember going out there and just buying every game that i could find that i didn't have on the atari 2600 and playing them maybe one or two times there was a few of them that really kind of stuck with me uh that i really liked like aliens 
or Alien, I guess it was. It was based, yeah. It was from the movie franchise, but it was basically Pac-Man. Yeah. But it was really well done. I liked it a lot better than the Pac-Man game on the Atari 2600. But I, that's when I knew something was changing, whether video games are going to go away forever or we're going to get something better. Because, yeah. I, And I knew that the, my problem with the ColecoVision is that my parents didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And so they were not going to buy me a ColecoVision. So I just wrote off that I'm never going to own one. Of course, that's when I got into collecting old video games, probably about a decade before it became a thing on the internet. Um, The first system that I bought was a ColecoVision. It wasn't even an Atari, because I already had an Atari. Um, But let's let's move on. Uh, At the end of the year, Time Magazine does Person of the Year, right? It used to be Man of the Year, and then it became Person of the Year, because it should be. Um, but 1982 was kind of weird. They had had early access to something that Apple was working on and that Apple debuted in the Super Bowl commercial called the Macintosh. And I remember reading stories about how pissed off Steve Jobs was because his impression was that the Mac was going to be named Person of the Year. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Time Magazine didn't do that. They named the Computer man of the year which you know i think is more accurate because the entire industry the computer was really on the rise and that was kind of driving the crash of what we saw with atari and clecovision that hey these home computers can play video games but they can do a lot more hence the rise of adobe yeah um and it really was a sea change in a way that even to this day, though, the only thing that we can really rival that too is maybe the coming of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. But even that isn't quite the the way that computers. It was just so different than anything else that kind of existed in the home up until that point. Uh, I'm sure that one of the reasons that Steve Jobs was annoyed was because the uh, cover image actually shows it shows a computer that's not dissimilar to the Mac. It has a separate mm-hmm. keyboard. And then the screen and all that, but the graphics and, and what even the screen is clearly text graphics. It's nothing like um, the the interface that, that the Macintosh would eventually have. Um, and I would imagine that would have rankled with him that it was backward looking, um, you know. But um, but for most people, that was computers. Of That's course, it what was. Yeah, everybody was used to. So it, yeah, to me, it made sense. And I, I actually I do remember that. Um, issue i remember when it came out and the computer was named man of the year they even talked about it on the news yeah and it was a it was a big deal i mean whoever was man of the year up to that point in time magazine that was and whether it was for (laughs) good things or bad i mean man of the year doesn't necessarily mean you're the greatest guy in the world that year because clearly adolf hitler was man of the year (laughs) (laughs) you know so it, it was probably the most influential person for the past year good or ill yeah and they, they made it up to steve later in uh, about 20 years later yeah he <laughs> was man of the year wasn't he, he was man of the year and there's a picture of him holding the imac so that must have been the late late 90s late 90s yeah yeah um so uh and he's wearing his obviously his uniform of then of his black turtleneck and his jeans um and he's got a big smile on his face and you can tell him he's think you can tell he's thinking suck it ibm yeah there you go yeah um, another big first, and it, it, this was a, a big change, although it didn't really explode right then, and that was the first CDs were produced. 
And well, that was a that was a big deal for audio quality, but you and I didn't get into CDs till a few years later. Uh, they were yeah, way it, expensive. That's right. I think it was probably um, yeah. I would say my first 85. CD player was 80, 85, 86, Yes, because yeah. it, basically I got bought one for uh, doing well in my uh, my exams, um, and and I was one of the first. I, I was at boarding school, so I was one of the few, first people at, at boarding school who had a CD player. Do you remember your first CD? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Slippy When Wet by Bon Jovi. Oh, really? Was it? Yeah. Mine and was um, Pyromania from Def Leppard. Okay, yeah, well, I had that one too pretty soon. Well, my um, uh, my first CD player was given to me as a Christmas present, but I actually went to the store and bought it and gave it to, with my parents' money because they yeah. didn't know what to buy. Yeah. Because uh, I had a, a component stereo system. Yeah. Yeah, there's an old photo yeah. of me on on Facebook stand, s- sitting in front of that stereo system. You've so seen I, it. yeah, I had a um, I also had a component stereo system of different different bits and pieces that I put together myself. And the CD player was the smallest thing I had. It was from Toshiba, and it was like a little top loader. It was it almost looked like an early version of a portable CD player, but it ran on the mains and it um, had to plug into a hi-fi. Um, but yeah, that was that was later on because it took two three years for cds to really i mean but even even when i bought mine the not every album came out on cd no you know it was quite a big deal if an album was remastered and reissued on cd yes um so uh so yeah you you had a fairly limited collection when um, even even later on but but the, the you know 82 is when the the kind of the the format was adopted and really the uh phillips and the and the other people who who helped develop it really managed to sort the industry into kind of committing to it in a big way um yes it took a few years for volumes to start to, to increase but you know it, it was the cd is important because it is the, we'd have no mp3 today if it wasn't for the cd it was the beginning of the digitalization of music oh no question about it um i i remember going the reason i got one is because uh, a store called abc warehouse was having a sale and they were having a sale on uh, a JVC CD player, and it was like maybe hundred hundred bucks, right. which in eighty five, I'm gonna guess, was a really good. That was a really good sale. Yeah, I mean that that was just like holy crap! It's how much, um, and so I bought one, and it was like two months before Christmas, so. I wasn't going to get to use this thing for a while. So I remember thinking before Christmas hit, well, I, I should probably get a CD to actually listen to this. So I went to a record store called the Rock Cafe. And CDs at the time were like 20 bucks, which for the mid-80s is a lot of money. Yeah. And I, uh, I remember looking through the paltry, and when I say paltry, I'm not kidding, the paltry selection of CDs that they had. And there was a few that jumped out at me. I almost bought um, um, a Thriller, which mm-hmm. by the for Michael Jackson, which by the way, biggest album of all time was released in 1982 as well. It's yeah. on our list, so we hit that one. We can skip it. Um, but looking through these, and I and I remember seeing Def Leppard's Pyromania, and I knew some of the music. Obviously, it was one of my favorite albums, so that's the one I bought. Once I saw it, it was it was like that's the one right there, yeah. And I remember listening to it on CD on Christmas Day, and I could not believe 
how good it sounded compared to cassette. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it quite literally was night and day. Um, night and know, day. It wasn't yeah. even close. The, it was the, the hiss was gone. The uh, you could hear all the music, uh, all the instruments far more clearly because they weren't all muddled up in the hiss. There was none of the static and crackles. You, you, you remember got when Dark Side of the Moon was finally released on CD? Yeah. What a it was a huge thing. Yeah. Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd came out on CD. It, it yeah. was gigantic. I, I just found a picture of my CD player. I sent it to you. The XRJ9 from Toshiba. I remember it well. Look at that. Top loader. <laughs> I don't remember my model. Oh, I just lost David because I hit back on the screen. And so uh, that's that's. And me. I've lost Tim, so I'm just going to dial him back. That's what happens when you send pictures over wire, guys. It hangs up the phone. Uh, unless Tim hanged it up. Did you did you did you hang up the phone when you were the, the, the call when you were trying to look at the picture? Or no, did I it looked just at crash? the picture, but then I hit back instead of closing the picture. Right. And, and it, I hit uh, back and it and went it, to the previous website. The previous website. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyways, um moving on, one of the biggest and I would argue uh, most influential movies of all time came out, and that's E.T. I didn't realize that was 82. I was thinking that was like 84, but no, it was 1982. Yeah. Um, and it's really the movie, more than any other, that cemented Steven Spielberg to be Steven Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. It, it's hard for those who weren't alive at the time or old enough at the time to understand the cultural significance of E.T. Yeah. It, it was so big. It, it was. And you know, I, I, I question myself about how well it holds up today. Um, in some respects, it holds up because it's, it's a classic story. Yeah. But in many other ways, it doesn't hold up. I know. I know the acting from, isn't great. Yeah. I know from experience of showing it to my kids that it doesn't really grab them the way it grabbed me at no. the time. Um, and, and well, but there was nothing to compare it to at the time. And nowadays, yeah. there's so many movies that take that same formula and do a much better job in special effects and acting and action. Yeah. And at the time, for the innocence that we were living in at 12 years old, there there really wasn't anything like it. No. And, and I think um, one of the things Spielberg was good back at that time, uh, was good back at that time. And, I mean, because he did this with Close Encounters of the Third Kind as well. He was re- he was like the Stephen King of cinema in that he could really capture domestic American life on film in a way that was extremely believable, even yes. when people were then exposed to these incredible events. Yes, um, you know the family in ET, the way they live, the, you know a single a single um, single parent family and everything, and and you know that the stuff which you was see brave th- at the time for yeah. him to do that. You, but the stuff you see them do is very is very credible. You know, the kids sitting around playing Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, riding around the bikes and all of the things they do, the way they live. And, you know, the little girl with all the cuddly toys in the room and everything, it's all very real. And it, it, and, and it doesn't come across the way that nowadays those things, when, they, when they're portrayed, come across as, you know, you can tell a set designer has built it. Whereas back then it just felt like, um, you know, a real thing. I, I remember reading that, Drew Barrymore, who played uh, played the little sister, yeah, she was only what three or four at the time she did that movie, yeah. um, and they basically they they played it that it was to her that it was real, 
Yeah, yes. they didn't. They didn't play it to her that she was in a film or all that sort of thing. As far as she was concerned, the whole thing was real, and ET was real. Obviously, they wanted to get the best reactions out of her, but I think it shows to how much care they had for um, the story they were creating that they would go to the effort of doing that. Because let's face it, many movie companies would have gone right. Bring the kid in, you know, give her a lollipop, stop her crying. We'll we'll grab the shot we need and then bundle her off again. Uh, and they didn't do that with her. And I, I think. Um, for me, that's part of what makes E.T. a great story is the fact that it, it feels, despite the fact that it's dealing with, um, you know, an alien from another, another planet, it feels very real to Absolutely. me. But, but I think you have to, I think maybe the reason it doesn't engage my kids is that it feels less real to them because the, the way people are living in that movie is not the way people live nowadays. It, it's, it's dated, no question. Yeah. It made <laughs> you know. $792, almost $793 million yeah. in 1982. Yeah. Almost a billion dollars. That is, that is so much money. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. Think of all the merchandising around E.T. Well, yeah, but the point is is that he didn't he didn't allow an awful lot of merchandising. It was many years before he allowed any advertising based on it. And yeah. um, it was also many years before he even let the movie come out on video. Um, I think I think he, he deliberately kept a bit of a lid on that. And, and, of course, what happened is, and we remember this from the 80s, do you remember how many basically knockoffs of E.T. came out? Oh, there was, yeah. there was Over probably the next five years. Yeah, the next five so years is probably ones. about thirty or forty movies that basically were clones of ET. Yeah, and we can't we can't mention one. I mean, they were also <laughs> well. I, 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 the only one that I think that that really um, that really stuck in my mind because it was so famous for being so bad was Mac and Me, which was oh, yes. the, the McDonald's yes. character one. Um, other know. than ET at the movies, we also had uh, Blade Runner, which. Wasn't a huge success at the theaters. It really wasn't. No, it really became um, a cult classic afterwards. Afterwards, you know? which was surprising because it's Harrison Ford, kind of not quite at his peak, but pretty damn close to his peak. Um, also, that year, you know what the number two grossing movie that year was? Rocky Three. Wow. Yeah, that's unbelievably huge. Um, and which then, one is Rocky Three? The Club Lang one or the yes. uh, yeah? Yeah, that's then. Yeah. Uh, and then I think you and I would both agree the best movie made just shy of $100 million that year, but it's the movie that completely turned a franchise around after its initial movie uh, and TV series. The one that really was like, okay, this could actually be good again. And that was Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Because the first Star Trek movie was so bad and boring. Oh my God. It was just like, we're all excited from Star Trek or Star Wars. And, oh, they're going to bring back the original crew from the Enterprise from this hokey TV series from the 60s. And, oh, it's going to be great. And then Star Trek, the motion picture was just. Oh, it was so bad. Well, so, yeah, the motion picture suffered because it, it was, basically they were going to do a TV show, uh, another TV show, like a like a bit like The Next Generation, really. Uh, and then at the last minute, the studio decided they, were, they weren't going to do that. They were going to do a movie. And so they rehashed a couple of scripts into the movie. So it, it creatively it suffered because the TV show was going to be kind of like The Next Generation became because Rodri was behind it. The first that first series of The Next Generation was it suffered from an awful lot of plodding plot and kind of big ideas and and fairly pedestrian and not very exciting. Um, and the, the difficulties you can get away with that on a TV show, but not in a movie. And um, yep, the motion picture bad. really suffered from that. Also, as well, I, I think. 
a lot of the design choices they made, um, bearing in mind that that even though Star Trek had been off off uh, the TV for a, a, uh, over a decade at that point, it, it wasn't off the TV because it was in reruns, and that's what made right. it so successful. It was so jarring how different it looked in terms of the technology and the look of the ships and everything. Remember, um, there was a five-minute montage of just approaching the Enterprise that's right, Rydock. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, oh, exactly, it and and it, and it looked like a completely different universe, and it really and did. It made made it very difficult to buy into. Um, well, it 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 would have been okay if the movie would have lived up to the visuals, and it yeah. just it didn't. But they got it right with Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan in yeah. 1982. They did a 180. Um, they made it all about action, and some still say that it is still the best of all the Star Trek movies. Now, uh, yeah, I'll tell you I what. think it's extremely well done, but yeah. I, I actually like all of the newer ones better than the yeah. Wrath of Khan. Uh, I, I, but the thing is, I watched the Wrath of Khan recently. It still holds up really well. It does. I mean, it was a great idea. Great bad guy. It was a great idea to to um, basically turn it into kind of like a battleship submarine style movie you know yeah. like the, the the fights against each other um yeah, and the it, one guy's from the 20th century and he take he thinks in two dimensions that's, that's right, how he yeah. beats him uh and um you know and then obviously it had the whole sacrificial plot of spock in it which is um you know is was is kind of star trek's equivalent of luke luke i am your father oh um, absolutely you know and they could they kind of kept that up the under wraps until the movie came out certainly for I mean, they wouldn't have been able to do it nowadays, but certainly for, for many of us who went to see the movie the first time, that was a kind of a real shocker. Um, I was bummed out that they brought him back in the very next movie. Well, but thank God they did, because I, you know what's one of my favorites of all the original cast Star Trek movies is? It's it's The Voyage Home. The Voyage Home. Yeah, well, it's a lot of people's favorites, which is funny because it's probably the least Star Trek of the Star Trek movies. Yeah, uh, but you it's know. very character-driven. Exactly, you know? yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a fun movie. Look, the clever thing they did with, with Star Trek 2 is they brought in a TV producer to produce it. Um, and he kind of, he, he got the property in a way that the people who'd done the motion picture hadn't. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to how to make it pop. Um, and then they used Nicholas Meyer, who's a, who's a great director. Uh, and really, he also really understood the material um, and really, uh, really kind of, kind of got it. And it's, yeah, as I say, it still pretty much holds up today as a movie, which is, uh, you know, for something that nearly 40 years old is pretty good. Some other things. Um, the Falklands Wars happened. <laughs> So, I mean, the reason I put that on is because if you were in Britain, obviously this dominated uh, for the probably four or five months of our of our time in 1982. Um, but it's interesting to look back on it because it was the... Uh, first of all, when... So the Falklands are these relatively... They're bigger than you think they are, but they're a set of islands in the South Atlantic. They're very close to Argentina. Well, certainly a lot closer than they are to Britain. Um, yeah, but slightly. but the the people who live there, um, you know, I mean, it was colonised in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. The people who live there consider themselves to be British. Argentina always has always laid claim to these islands, um, and in nineteen eighty two, they had a military government. They decided to invade um, as part of propping up their military government. Now, at the time, I think everyone expected Britain to just go. Well, there's not very much we can do about that. Yeah, I think that's that was exactly <laughs> the sentiment. A lot yeah. of people were like. Well, they're, they're, yeah, they're, I guess they lost the Falkland Islands. They're about they're about ten thousand miles away from Britain, um, and uh, instead, what we did, and, and our military at the t- even at the time was not. I mean, it was nothing like the American military uh, in terms of 
sophistication and what have you. Yeah, I don't know. Us, the Harriers were pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, That's they what were, I remember. But they're very, they're very off the wall. And at the time, they'd never been proven in combat at all. Yep. Um, and and the thing is the Harrier because of what it can do because it does um, you know vertical landing and everything that imposes limitations. It's, yeah, it's but it's not a supersonic aircraft. No, um, it's it's not huge. Well, it wasn't thought to be hugely maneuverable. Um, and and really, I think everybody thought you know Britain goes down there. You know, Argentina's within five six hundred miles of the Falklands are going to get their asses kicked. And instead, we went down there and we most certainly did not get our asses kicked. Uh, and the other thing as well is, if you look back at it now on, on a, from a military perspective, you might say, well, once we got there, we should have just spanked the Argentinians. And we didn't. And the reason for that is that despite the fact that we had the Argentinians were using, I mean, some of their ships they bought from, um, they were ex-World War II ships from America. Most of their navy was. Yeah. Uh, their aircraft were uh, Vietnam-era Douglas Skyhawks from America. <laughs> Which, by the way, are fifties and early sixties designs. Exactly, they were not modern aircraft no, by I, any stretch yeah. of the imagination. They did have some modern missiles, though. They had the Exocet missile, yes. which is um, proved itself to be a, a truly devastating weapon. Correct. Um, but but it also exposed some quite serious deficiencies in the capabilities of the seventies area stuff era stuff that we were flying and we were sailing in particular, uh, and also some real tactical problems we had. But the, the Harrier. Wow, the Harrier really kind of proved itself. Turned out that what you can do, when you when you've got an a, a engine nozzle that can be rotated so that you can land vertically, like a you, helicopter. Yeah, if you do that while you're flying at close to close to you know five six hundred miles an hour, then basically your aircraft can jump around the sky like a scalded cat. Yeah, um, and they flew absolute rings around the Argentinians. Um, I remember watching the news. Yeah, that that's why I knew about the Falkland Falkland Wars because back then, back in the eighties, everybody watched you know the evening news. That's what yeah. you did, and it it dominated here in the U.S. too. And it was always, it seems to me, and I'm probably mistaken, but what I remember anyways, was the Harrier. And I just, yeah. that that fascinated me to no end. I knew it wasn't as fast as what uh, the American military was putting up in the air, but I was just like, wow, that, that is such a fascinating thing. That, that, that Harrier is just awesome. Yeah, and they were only recently retired from the Royal Air Force. So, um, it, you know, it goes, goes to show really... Um, what sometimes you know what innovative design can do and innovative tactics can do over you know regular sort of like by the numbers comparing two different types of thing and it was the air superiority they achieved over the Falklands that allowed that campaign to succeed and don't get me wrong don't get me wrong I mean I'll I would still say today that that uh, British army soldiers and British commando soldiers are probably some of the finest in the world at land to land you know straight um, infantry fighting and yep. that was a very important part of it as well it was. because you know they uh, the terrain is incredible but it was your air force that cut yeah. off the supplies exactly yeah so. um and and yeah and then the you know the navy was uh despite the fact they lost several ships and some of them some of the losses were quite embarrassing really because they really got caught with their pants down um you know the british navy kind of proved it's 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 worth there as well as i said it dominated our news for most of 1982 so it, it was pretty well, important it put thing Britain for us back on the map as as 
a, a power to be reckoned with. Yeah, and and you know what, we're seeing some parallels today. At the time of the eighties, there was a, there was a lot of proposed cutbacks in the armed forces, um, you know, and a lot of talk of we 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 geared up for a war that we don't ever need to fight anymore. The Falklands right. kind of proved that, that sometimes you have to adapt to fight something you hadn't expected. And we're kind of going the same through through thing with our military at the moment. They're talking. There was a talk last week of actually uh, retiring all of our tanks because we don't need them anymore, which, you know, it's kind of, it, it almost gets to the point when you've got political cutbacks with military, it's a case of, well, you might as well not have armed forces at all. And, you know, I'm no warmonger, I don't want to see soldiers fighting anywhere, but I do recognise that sometimes having an armed forces is uh, is necessary in, in the modern world. Um, 1982 was, um, in some respects, a scary year uh, here in the US. And, and remember, I'm in, West Michigan, not very far from Chicago. Yeah. And one of the biggest stories that year, which, by the way, has still never been solved, was the Tylenol scare. Yeah. A number of people died because they took Tylenol and it was poison. Someone had um, got Tylenol from some stores, put poison in it, and returned them to the store shelves. And not, people took them yeah. and died. Uh, not a, um, they'd lace them with cyanide as well, which is a yeah. pretty horrible way to... Uh, poison you know yeah and this was national media this to me this was one of the very first stories that i remember seeing on the news that directly affected me because in short order every bottle of tylenol in the entire country and probably the world was pulled off the shelf yeah and we saw something change and it was the tamper-proof bottle you know it was, you can tell quickly whether someone has opened this bottle. And the, the issue was no one ever found out who did it. That, that is one of the big mysteries um, that we still have today. And I don't think we'll ever know who did it. Unless the, the culprit dies and, and leaves a deathbed confession, we'll never going to know. It's, yeah. you know, some people sus- suspected that um, it was, and it was only in the Chicagoland area and only a couple different stores that it was targeted at a certain individual and yeah. whoever did it, did it in that way. So you couldn't pinpoint who it was. And, and I know the FBI investigated that angle. Uh, I watched a unsolved mysteries or something like that probably 15 years ago about it, but never found out who did it. And it was never repeated. No. Uh, it is yeah, it is definitely a strange one, um, and uh, you know, I guess probably not just because of tamper-proof bottles, but probably they wouldn't be able to get away with it nowadays. Nowadays, yep. you'd be able to chemically um, analyze the cyanide used and probably identify where it was manufactured, and there's DNA evidence and everything as well. Um, much better logistical tracking of of manufacturing bottles and things like that, which I, I, I presume also came out of that incident. The fact that they, they can now track, track an individual bottle to batches and actually see where it's gone all the way through is probably related to yep. uh, to that. And, and let's face it, everybody has that sort of logistical capability now, thanks to computers. So, uh, yeah, thankfully not the sort of crime you would hope, uh, you, you would hope could ever be repeated. But, um, you know, I, I, I think the big thing for me about that one was... Um, I have heard this discussed several times as a as an object lesson in how to deal with a crisis by Johnson and Johnson, because yes. they basically, despite the fact it was just a few bottles of in Chicago, they pulled the entire U.S. stock of Tylenol and wrote they it did. off, and that's yep. because they knew 
Well, they recognised that that was the only way to have public confidence. Yes. Um, and, you know, a, a masterclass in how to, you know... It could have destroyed right, the brand forever, and yeah, it didn't. Do do the right thing and, um, and you know, have the public continue to buy your products. And then, at the meantime, also, you know, guarantee that no other customer is going to co- open a bottle of this stuff. So uh, a couple of the last things before we wrap up this episode. Lawn Chair Larry... <laughs> uh, this idiot who tied a whole bunch of uh, weather balloons to a lawn chair rose up in the sky with a pellet gun. His idea was he was going to go up high. He'll shoot a couple of the balloons to come down. Um, and he did. It was successful. He didn't die. But what an idiot. I remember yeah. that being on the news. Uh, and it's one of those things that has almost become a meme now. You often see jokes of people with... Uh, yeah. you, you, you and, and obviously, fam- most famously, it was in the uh, it was the base of that movie, Up, where he yes. tied balloons to his house. Um I don't, most people don't realize quite how many blades you need to be able to lift yourself up in a, a chair. <laughs> a hell of a lot. Or um, some really, really big balloons. Yeah. Uh, John Belushi died that year. So John Belushi is a, a, a alum of Saturday Night Live. He just kind of started getting into the movies. Um, one of my favorite movies of his was Continental Divide. It was actually a love story, but I really, really liked that movie. Um, Blues Brothers, of course. Well, so. that, that's I knew him from 1941 and the Blues 1941 Brothers. 1941 is the pilot. Yep. Yeah. So he he he. I think he was on the cusp of being a, a megastar. Yeah. Until he overdosed on heroin. Um, I think it was heroin, anyways. That's and, right. and and yeah, he was basically his drug tailing taking was it was out of control Legendary. through all well through all those movies we just talked about basically he was yeah. being managed to, to deliver performances because he was just it wasn't just heroin it was everything he yeah. was i he understand was that he everything. actually got off of it pretty good for continental divide and i think it really showed in his performance in that movie that it was a serious it was kind of a comedy love story but it was also kind of serious and the character he played in there was extremely well done. It really showed. It was the only movie, in my opinion, that ever really showed his the the range of character that he had. That he yeah. really was a good actor, and he could go beyond, you know, the funny fat guy. Um, you know, Chris Farley famously said he based his career off of John Belushi. That was his hero, and he died at the same age of a drug overdose. So that was yeah, kind of well, sad. Well, that's that's taking method method um, little, acting little to, to extreme. Yeah. Uh, the L- Late Night with David Letterman started that year. Um, in the U.S., David Letterman was, you know, alternative before there was such a thing. He was the anti-Carson. He was, you know, he had a snarkiness that didn't exist at that level. And he yeah. took chances on his program that nobody had seen before. You no, know, he, it was he so was, innovative. He, he came, I mean... He walked. He's always walked a very fine line. He really came across as so irreverent. He would constantly be dissing the network. <laughs> well, he was. And, he was. Uh, uh, you know, he was an ugly guy. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be a good-looking guy or woman if you're going to do a show like that. And he's this gap-toothed, curly-haired, orange hair. I mean, there was no way this should have worked. But he yeah. was so brilliant at what uh, he did. And I think, I think one of the, and we we have this a lot nowadays, but. But back then, one of the things that really made him brilliant was the fact that he didn't completely just kiss ass to the guests. No, you he know, didn't. If he thought the guest something about the guest was ridiculous or stupid, he would say so. He would yes. make it a joke. He and he was he was very good at not being too mean. 
Um, I think that's what, what a lot of people nowadays kind of miss is the fact that it's easy to be mean to people. He was very good at just crossing the line a little bit and poking yeah, fun without, but yeah, yeah, but without making them feel upset. Um, and yeah, he made uh, it so that the audience was in on the joke, even yeah. if the guest wasn't. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see him now, he has a Netflix show. I think he's done one or two episodes. It's bad. Um, I think his time has passed and every kind of late night show that's come afterwards owes a lot to the late show with David Letterman way more than they owe to say Johnny Carson. Yeah. Um, as good as the tonight show with Johnny Carson was, um, the late show kind of lay the groundwork for what kind of every, uh, host and guest could expect on a show like that. Yeah. And and I would argue that, you know, those kinds of late night TV shows are, are kind of passe now and people don't really care and not very many people watch them outside of YouTube. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how long that that's even going to continue. Uh, the last thing, maybe the most significant event of 1982. <laughs> we still talk about it to this day. A fan threw a bat on stage at an Ozzy Osbourne concert and Ozzy picked it up thinking it was a fake bat <laughs> and bit the head off of it and it wasn't a fake bat <laughs> what makes me laugh it's, you've put in the notes the first time Ozzy bit the head yes, off because he, he's, he's done it a number, because it, it kind of it, it made national news people were they interviewed him talking about the bat and and as brilliant of a musician that Ozzy Osbourne is, and you can agree or disagree, I really like his 80s stuff the best. Yeah. Um, he, he picked it up, literally, and ran with it. <laughs> I the, well, what I've always wondered about the stories is, what was the fan thinking, and where did they get the bat from? Uh, <laughs> why, you know, why a bat? Well, and they, he, he, and they well, said a bat was dead, so you threw a dead bat... <laughs> At a but rock star. Where do you go to get a dead bat? You where, don't go to a pet store and say, Did you find <laughs> it? Have you got a dead bat? You, you, it wasn't in the stadium, so you you found a dead bat probably you, outside. You I can't smoked. imagine you drove to the event with a dead bat. So you found it, yeah. and your first thought that you went with is, I'm going to pick it up and throw it <laughs> on stage. Well, I mean... you can't argue with his results i guess i mean you would think that ozzy would probably pay this guy some kind of uh, finder's fee to, yeah know. of course nowadays people go oh it was a setup um <laughs> no it wasn't no but um, nowadays that's what yeah. people would assume well sharon it probably would have been a setup nowadays yeah. but so that yeah. was 1982 the few things that uh we have time to talk about uh, what do you guys think? What do you have memories of 1982? How old were you? What what pops out in your mind when you think of that year? These are just the ones that David and I found and, and thought we yeah. would talk about. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can send us um, uh, email. It's the show at uh, geekspubpodcast.com. You can either go to geekspubpodcast.com or mymac.com and leave a message. And uh, we'll read some of your feedback here on the show in the future. We'll be back in two weeks. And uh, who knows what we'll talk about. We're probably not going to do a year again, but we'll find something else that's uh, fun to talk about. And uh, uh, I'll and, see you then. Go ahead. And uh, next week, Tech Fan, 
Apple yeah. event this week. So yeah. Apple event. Um, I think we all are expecting uh, new iPhones. So yep. We'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll see trash what him. We'll trash them. <laughs> see you, see you next week on Tech Fan and in two weeks on Geeks Pub, David. See you then. <laughs>